Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or... Get a low-maintenance Trex deck. The only colour fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to Crunching the Numbers. Going inside and breaking down the game and finding out what all the data means. Welcome to another episode of Crunching the Numbers. I'm your host, Mark Supports, from the tennis venue, and we are joined by the numbers man, Shane Leonard from Data Driven Sports Analytics. Shane, welcome once again. Hi, everyone. It's been a busy week, um, but I've always got time for these podcasts with Mark. It's always a busy week for you, counting sheep in your sleep and doing the numbers through the day. So, obviously, you're pretty full on with what you do, Shane, but we love it. And we're also joined once again, similar to last week, we brought uh, George Voyatis from the Melbourne International Tennis School. Uh, development coach extraordinaire. Georgie, thanks so much for joining us once again. Hello, hello, gents. Good to be back. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it is good. You know, it's a, it's exciting because we've last week we covered a little bit about, you know, when players are peaking in their age and of, of playing and we looked at the WTA tours and we looked at, you know, men are peaking at roughly around the 25 to 30-year-old mark and the females around the sort of 22-ish to 25-ish. So there's a little bit of a difference in the ATP WTA tours. We wanted to follow on the conversation around, we look at now the ability to sustain a level has become so much more important than anything else. And we're going to cover off some of the top players. And Shane, you've obviously been digging through the archives and you're a, you're, you're a great uh, archaeologist in that way in that you just keep chipping away until you find the numbers that you want. You know, the ages of the top players, and obviously Federer and Nadal Djokovic and Serena Williams are the four we're probably looking at that have just dominated this sport for such a period of time. What have you been able to, uh, to dig up this week in terms of numbers around those top four players? Yeah, it's re- really interesting looking at this stuff. And I, and I thought I'd remind listeners that last week we looked at ATP players and their player ratings um, by age split by the decade they were born in uh, and really trying um, with that analysis to find ages where they develop and reach their peak or prime and then work out how long they stay in their prime and then the post-prime period for them. Um, and what was interesting to note was that players born in the 70s hit their prime earlier, around 24 years of age, and they had about five, six years roughly in their prime. Um, and then the ratings curve uh, looked like uh, it fell off a cliff, really, um, at around 31, 32, where they rapidly declined and, and obviously went into eventual retirement. And if you contrast this with players born in the 80s, so the likes of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Rinka, you're seeing them reach their prime a little bit later, but they're able to prolong their prime a bit longer. And then you find that they've found ways to mitigate the deterioration in, in their ratings in the post-prime period. And in Federer's case, um, play almost to his 40s at, at a really an incredibly high level. So I'll throw it to these two gents in a second, but I thought I'd give our listeners some more context on, on the greats 
um, in this current generation with some interesting stats. Now, Federer won his first Grand Slam at the age of 21. He had eight slams at 24. And if you were to single out a prime period for him, you'd say it was probably from the age of 23 to 28, where he won 11 slams and had an incredible winning ratio on tour. Perhaps even more incredibly, his post-prime period, He's gone on to win another seven slams. We all know the incredible run he had in 2017 at, at that age, and um, and he's still been competitive even even since then. Now Nadal's a bit of a throwback, maybe to a previous decade in terms of peaking at quite a young age. Really, uh, he, he was probably he's probably the last teenage superstar that I can think of on the male side, anyway. And he won his first slam at 19, um, and he actually started that Roland Garros the, the year one as an 18 year old, so he turned 19 on route to the slam. By 24, he had nine slams, and you. Actually, say his prime period was from uh, the ages of 21 to 26, where he won nine slams and he also had his highest sort of win percentage on tour for a five year block. But uh, like Federer, Nadal's also managed to put together another eight slams in his post-prime period. And then you've got Djokovic in comparison. Um, he's peaked a bit later, you'd say. Uh, it, it took him a while to consolidate himself as a frequent sort of grand slam threat. He did win a, a slam early um, as a 20-year-old. took him another three, three and a half years to, to work his way to his prime. And uh, once he got there, he's been incredibly prolific. Um, um, and uh, as a five-year block, if you look at his best five-year block, it was from when he was 27 to 32 and yeah, where he won 11 slams uh, at a career high sort of win percentage and um, and then in his post prime he's amassed another four slams so quite fascinating and incredible um, and then on the women's side you've got Serena who I'd say she's had multiple prolific periods so uh, early on in the 20s and then later in the 20s early 30s and mid 30s she's found a way to reinvent and keep winning lots of slams quickly I might start there I know that's a lot of information to digest boys but I, I'd love to get your thoughts on why these legends have been able to have such long successful careers well i guess the the biggest thing that i'm finding right now is that if you're thinking about the late 30s i think i'm a chance to peak right now so um i'm, I'm in my prime guys so look forward to a comeback and uh, i don't know no I, I i retired before long before i even got to a prime i don't even think there was a prime in my career but george i guess like you know we're looking at that at the moment with a lot of players that we coach in terms of how do we maintain or get players to be able to to hold levels for long periods of time. Now, we're dealing with a lot of juniors, but we obviously take that holistic approach in our development phase. So do you want to talk a little bit about that sort of stuff in terms of how do we keep these players sustaining the level? And we talked last week about knowledge now of sports science, but you know, what's your thoughts around that? Mark, that is a very, very complicated question <laughs> and could be broken down into a million different parts. But I suppose... I mean, at the junior level, I think it's about self-discovery and, and understanding why you're being successful, which is also relevant to the, top, to the top level, of course. With our junior athletes, it's about building a process that gives them success, right? Let's experiment. Let's see what works, what doesn't work. I think at the higher level, I think it's about, you know, look at guys like Federer, Nadal and Djokovic. All of them have, have shared the same pattern in that they change up their game style almost. There's a phase where they change up their game style. You'll see, you know, there was a phase where Federer was nonstop going to the net. You know, you see Rafa going to the net, who's a, who's a really really strong baseline and he's now coming forward more than ever before they're evolving constantly and they're always giving their opponents something different to look at because at the end of the day they're the they're the kind of hunted players right yeah they're the ones that are constantly being analyzed and if you don't bring something fresh and something different 
then you're going to get left behind. I think that's something that those players have done. Health, talked about sports science. Money's a big one. I don't remember a time before these kind of, you know, where Federer could take six months off financially speaking and just come back. No problem. I'll just jump back on tour. That's not really something that used to happen once upon a time. Once you were done, you were done. I love the way you've spoken about evolving because I think the top players and Serena included in that as well, Yep. They continually evolve their game and find those little extra one or two percent things that might help their game, whether it be equipment. Federer changed his rackets, you know, and it was a huge change for him, changing game styles, bringing coaches into their teams. Like, you know, you've seen Boris Becker go into the team of, of Novak Djokovic, and, you know, they've, they've evolved their coaching teams, have evolved their game styles, have evolved their equipment. And they've always tried to stay ahead of the game. And I feel like when they're traveling with such a big team, Shane, you can jump in here. I think it's really important to be able to sustain. They travel with a fitness coach, a masseuse, a physio, and it keeps their bodies going the whole way through the year and to be able to peak when they need to peak. Yeah, I think there were some great points that um, both Mark and George raised, and I'd like to stay on that a little while longer. I think the financial point is a really good one. The prize money and endorsements that are available, including the tournament appearance fees, these guys at the top have the luxury to play a small schedule and that can still maintain and or sustain their lifestyle, even just playing such a limited uh, amount of time. And I, I think the other thing that the big guys and girls are doing better is preparing to peak at the big events better. So they've got the help of, you know, sports scientists, physios, trainers, data people. They're managing their loads and tapering to peak at those slams and the lucrative events a lot better than they were in perhaps in previous eras. If you look at Federer, he basically only plays the Grand Slams and hand-selected sort of Masters events and his home event in Basel. He opts to skip Roland Garros on a number of occasions as well, just to, to make sure his body is tip-top for the events that he, he believes he can win. In recent years, Nadal's followed that blueprint as well. Um, he's Obviously, his focus is a little bit different. He's still trying to maximise the amount of tournaments and the points he can sort of accumulate on the clay. And then everything around that, he'll sort of hand-select some events them and he'll play the slam and that's it and I think that's definitely allowed them to play a bit longer than they would have had they sort of retained their existing schedules another important thing is that the equipment in tennis has evolved and you've got more powerful frames for the rackets you've got different strings that are able to give you a bit more power more spin um, just uh, yeah a lot of sort of uh, evolution in that space has allowed players to do more with their game with less strain on the body so these things have sort of prolonged the power in, in a player's game and allowed them to also benefit from the wisdom and experience that they have with more years on tour and more matches and battles and collectively that's actually made these players play longer we're all aware of that sort of famous sort of racket change that Roger implemented in 2014 where he switched to a bigger head size and that's contributed to him to be able to evolve his game in, in that sort of post-prime period and he's still a threat sort of equipment driven partially since the elbow issues in 2017 Djokovic has done the same thing he's tweaked his racket a fair bit he's lengthened it and he's changed the balance and, and that's all to sort of ease pressure on his elbow so he can basically play technically the game he wants to play but using the equipment to be able to give him a bit more than it had in the past Mark rightfully pointed out that teams are getting larger you're not just seeing one coach you're seeing two physios trainers analysts there's a whole whole entourage behind a team and um, and that's allowed them to peak again for the events because they've just got so many people helping them well look i think analysts are overpaid just quietly but it's just, <laughs> it's just another point but I, I think you know when you when you have a team like that and 
George touched on finances, and I think finances are a huge factor in being able to sustain your career because if you don't need to play for the money, then you can pick and choose the tournaments you play. You can keep yourself fresh. You can peak for the right times. You can have a bigger team on, on your side as well. And that plays a big role, obviously. And we deal with juniors, George, all the time. And I think, you know, we find a lot of the money game. You know, if you don't have the finances to be able to have the best of everything, it can be very challenging to develop players right the way through. And can they play tournaments? Can they travel? Can they afford to get the, the best equipment needed for themselves. And, you know, we, we find that day in, day out. And I, I think there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people, and I was one of those players growing up, but I didn't have the finances to support myself to be able to take my career anywhere. And I think there's a lot of kids and players that we have, George, that go through that same kind of scenario. What do you think about that? 100%. We lose a lot more talent to finances than I think to the level of the game, let's say, that they can't make it. So many talented players in this country, especially. We have an extra challenge being in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> like 24 hours away from all the action. Costs us extra. It's not like in Europe, you know. I remember going to Moritogli a couple of years ago and within an hour, we're in Italy. You know, we could chase tournaments. We could just drive our car. We didn't need $2,500 flights. You know, it's, it's such a big thing. Also, just in general, Australia is an expensive country. $90 an hour, $100 an hour, $120 an hour for private lessons like and when the kid needs to be seen pretty much every day that's a hard thing to kind of sustain over a long period of time and I think part of that responsibility also falls on coaches as a side note like we should be financially responsible I believe with like okay how can I maximize with the budget that I'm given what this kid can do and where this kid can what this kid can access for me college is the pathway I think scholarships a really great thing education just simply because of how expensive things are as Australians and as a sport uh, I think you're 100% correct on that and uh, I had a little story about uh, I was in Melbourne at the Australian Open uh, in 2011, I'm going to say, and we had a, I was coaching Romanian player Victor Hanescu at the time, and we organised a session with Novak Djokovic. So Novak was looking for a hitting partner. I, I saw it, um, and I thought, okay, let's sign up with Novak. So we signed up with Novak, and uh, we get on court. It's me and Victor, and we walk out into the court, and on the court is Novak with his coach and his other coach, and his fitness trainer, and his mm-hmm. physio, and his masseuse, and his, and his manager, and his family, and it was 10 of them on the court, and it was me and Victor. And I looked at it and went, it's almost an un- unfair playing field because mm-hmm. this guy has the ability to have someone warm him up, stretch him, provide all the information before training, which I had to do. And, and look, at the end of the day, you know, as a coach, we've got to wear multiple hats. But, you know, I felt like it was a little bit of an unfair playing field at that time. And... I looked at it on the court and I went, you know, there wasn't any difference in the hitting. But once you got to the match play, it was a big difference. Now, was that due to, you know, the ability to have someone with you 24-7 and almost have a you know, carers with you the whole time to be able to do that? And I look at it now and Novak's still got the, that same sort of team with him. Being able to sustain himself physically, mentally, technically, tactically right across the board um, because he's got these people to constantly be there in his ear and help him out. Um, and a yeah. lot of the lower end players just don't have the ability to financially sustain that. And that's where you look at the top players in the world are still playing because they've got the teams around them to be able to help them to do that. And they get people like yourself, Shane, and they're forking out millions of dollars for people like you. Um, <laughs> and then and then they fall away, you know, with their careers pretty quickly. But that's an aside <laughs> note. But no, it's it's good. It's actually nice to see. Someone said to me the other day in an interview, they said, oh, isn't it crap that there's been no different champions in, on Grand, in Grand Slam since 2010? You know, we've had pretty much four four Grand Slam men champions. I said, well, no, because it's great to see champions continue in the game. And if we lose champions to the game, then what do we have? You know, yeah. so, you know, variety is one thing, but you lose the best players that have ever played and we lose role models. So 
you know, Shane, I think this is a really good topic for us to discuss because it's about sustainability and not just getting there and, and, and that's it. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And I, and I do want to remind everyone that uh, we'll be putting some of this visual content uh, of the analysis out on social media. So just keep an eye out for it. And also that the analysis that we've done is at a macro level. So it's a whole of tour. Uh, you'll see the WTA and the ATP. But as a coach, you're still going to need to to step back a little bit and and know that you need to individualize for the athletes you're working on. There's going to be outliers. I think George pointed out uh, when he spoke last week, um, and a, a good example of an outlier for me is Martina Hingis. The prime period for athletes in a decade were was sort of early 20s to, to mid 20s. She had a prime period, certainly as a singles player, as a teenager. So she, she's very different and, um, and it's good that sort of people identified the talent she had and the, her ability to sort of make it on tour at such a young age and, and, and a lot of success. Uh, so each athlete's different. I think there's still going to be indicators that coaches need to pick up on that their athlete is either progressing a bit faster than normal or they may be a, a bit slower and, and need a bit more time doing sort of fundamentals. And, and again, a key point that Mark and George raised last week was around the sort of development age versus the actual uh, age. And, and, and that's an important sort of distinction to, to be aware of. And I thought I'd throw both of you guys one more from me and it's around mindset. And in particular, the mindset of champions who have had a period of success in their prime, playing a style that they're comfortable with. And then to be able to, for them to be able to switch evolve in that sort of post-prime period to continue to be successful. You know, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena are great examples that we've been talking about. And I have to say that they're probably well within their rights to be stubborn and refuse to change given how much success they had in their prime. And yet they've had the mindset where they've identified that things are not working as well as at one point in time. And then they've just gone off and done something else to try and sustain their level in the sport, their involvement in the sport, and really probably that sort of curiosity and enjoyment in the sports also being maintained because they're they're able to do something different. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the mindset adjustment. And and I might start with you, George. Yeah, that's a great question, mate, because I've actually noticed that pattern with, yeah, like you said, like the top, you know, looking, let's say even Serena, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, they've all actually gotten to the point where they weren't that effective per se and they had to go away and remodel their game. I think it kind of comes down to, well, one, it's the mindset of being open to, to making those kind of changes and understanding why they, they know themselves as players and they do a lot of work in finding the right coaches and the right people. That's huge for them. Like saying the wrong thing to a player could completely change their mindset. So they're very careful, particularly and careful about that. There's a lot of respect towards the legends of the game that have retired. They consult with those people consistently. And then to go out and like change the game that the way they do is just, I mean, I can't even tell you how they do it, mate. Like it's just an incredible thing to be able to do to go from being a baseliner to increasing your net play and tracking back. That's the mentality right they're comfortable being uncomfortable that that's the mindset i think that's the mentality it's i'm okay to be uncomfortable because i know it's going to take me to a better place and i think that's probably one of the main things that separates the champions from the rest yeah but i think that's a, it's a great way to, to say it. be comfortable being uncomfortable because without the uncomfort you're not going to develop and, and continually grow and these players you know have shown um how they can evolve themselves how they can evolve their games how they evolve their teams to stay on top. And I think that's the, the main, you know, conversation that we wanted to bring up today was how they've been able to do it. And it's, there's so many different ways they've done it, but they've just continually wanted to improve. And they have done that over time. They've got great people around them. They've got a great team that, you know, connects really well. And, you know, Shane, we've worked as part of a team on a couple of players and, 
you know, if you don't have that camaraderie in your team, not just with the athlete, it makes it really challenging for success and sustained success at that. Yeah, I think with the bigger teams, it's really important to have that harmony um, in, in the team and, and the team members to, to be able to clearly communicate and play their role. I think the big guys have all got really strong, sort of solid head coaches that manage the mechanics of the team and, and make sure that sort of the information is filtered appropriately when we're reaching the player and the communication is all efficient. And that really has worked well in terms of team performance. And, and you see that with the big guys have done that well. And, and, and you've also seen examples where it's not sort of working so well and you've seen sort of high profile players sort of part ways quite early on with um, people they've brought in just because of that sort of disharmony within the team. I want to leave it on that because I think it's a, it's a really important factor for us to, to be able to finish on is, is you know, keep evolving your game. Um, make sure you have a really good team around you to ensure that your game consistently evolves. You know, obviously to sustain a long career, it's definitely financial as well. So make sure you have a really good plan around, you know, what you're doing financially with your athletes. George and I have to do that constantly and make sure we've got budgets of, of families every day. But it's a really big topic that obviously is, is huge in development. And, you know, obviously, George, thanks again for, for jumping on this week and having a chat around it. I know, you know, you're, you're a busy man and you're obviously on the court many hours a day and seeing this day in, day out. So we do thank you for your time and obviously your expertise in this in this topic. I've always got time for you guys. Thanks for having me on and I'll, yeah, I'll see you next time. Much appreciated. Uh, thanks, George. And thanks again, Shane, the man who digs up all the numbers from all over the globe. He's coming to us with first hearing of this conversation, I guess. There's not many people talking about this in the world. And we hear a lot of data around the actual stats of the game. But you're bringing us a lot of different stuff, Shane. And we really appreciate what you do. It's a pleasure, Mark. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks again, George. I've seen some, some of the amazing work that you do on court. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really great to, to have you come here. Um, and perhaps more importantly, uh, I want to say you shoulder the burden of having to deal with Mark seven days a week. So <laughs> you deserve a prize, mate. So. Uh, uh, we'll end on that note. Yeah. Well, on that note, George is just quick coaching with me. So thanks for that, uh, Shane. Appreciate it. But that was George Voyartis from the Melbourne International Tennis School, Shane Leonage from Data Driven Sports Analytics. Myself, Mark Falls from the Tennis Menu. Thank you once again for joining us on Crunching the Numbers. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Crunching the Numbers. Make sure you subscribe to receive all the First Serve podcast. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.